Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Dave McKechnie. On today's podcast, we speak to a journalist who's been receiving harrowing reports from asylum seekers in Libyan detention centres amid fierce fighting in the country. The worsening situation raises fresh questions about the European Union's policy towards migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean. But first, Sweden goes to the polls this weekend for elections that many consider to be among the country's most important in decades. The polling has taken on a pattern we are well familiar with. The ruling Social Democrats are flagging and the populists are surging. But this is Sweden, long and widely envied for its standard of living, its openness and its equality, not to mention its Nordic cool. So how did the country take a shift to the right and what does it mean for this weekend's election? Derek Scally is reporting from Sweden this week for the Irish Times and he joins us on the line from Stockholm. Derek, you're based in Berlin but have watched Swedish politics closely for a long time and reported from there. What is different about this election and why should we care? I think it's a, it's sort of a, it's almost like a debutante ball. People are wondering, is Sweden going to become the next country to take alert to the right, to embrace right-wing populism at a time of global uncertainty, whether it's globalization or immigration? So people are kind of wondering, is Sweden about to go mainstream and follow uh, Austria, uh, even Germany in some respects? Uh, and that's what people are watching uh, ahead of this weekend. Okay, now you were at a, an anti-Nazi demo on Saturday, I know. What, what were the people uh, you spoke to saying about ext- how extremist rhetoric has entered the debate there? Well, I, I, uh, I, I was strolling along in gorgeous sunshine the first day of September, and it was a really golden day. And then suddenly you find yourself inside an anti-Nazi demo in Sweden. And I found myself talking to people, am I, am I hallucinating? What is this? And they said, I know, this is absolutely insane that we, A, are here, and B, that we have to have an anti-Nazi demo. And what they were protesting against was, a week previously, uh, there was a small demonstration of 200 far-right people, not from any political party, but uh, from a Nordic Defence League. And they are extremely uh, hardcore neo-Nazi. And they were marching through Sweden a week previously, and now people have come out in the thousands to protest against this. Uh, And what they're saying is, this is a small, tiny ideological group, a really ideological hardcore, but they are leaning on the far-right Sweden Democrats, who everybody is watching, and they are surging in polls, and um, and in, in turn having a knock-on effect, some people would say, on the Swedish political system. So it's, it's, it's a common political phenomenon. A populist party comes along, let's say, on the right, and other parties feel they have to shift slightly to the right to counter them and their policies. And that's what this march was about. They said, um, if neo-Nazi groupings are influencing Swedish politics, is this the Sweden we know and love? And they said, this is not our Sweden, and that's what they're protesting about. Now, obviously, immigration is a hot topic in the election. Um, Looking at the immigrant numbers, there's some 163,000 asylum seekers arrived in 2015. But it does seem that many of the issues are are not around the sheer numbers, which were very large, obviously, but but also questions of integration and also the the welfare state and the generosity of it. Can you talk us through some of those those issues? Sweden took in 163,000 immigrants now. Um, in, a, in a country of 10 million people, you really noticed that. And I think proportionately they took in more than Germany. And um, the, the debate really is how do we integrate these people and how much resources do we uh, divert to integrating them? Uh, and many people are saying, well, what about our hospitals? Why is suddenly uh, the, the waiting list in hospitals? Why is cancer care? Why um, has pediatric care suffered? And people are seeing a correlation with um, the money that's being spent on immigrants. And we have a populist far-right party saying, yes, you are struggling, you are suffering, so that people who have 
arrived from Afghanistan or Syria and get a free apartment and free welfare. So obviously that has struck a chord, um, particularly because until recently, until about a year ago, no mainstream party would ever have dared say anything like that. But reacting to the far right challenge, uh, the mainstream parties are taking a more critical line. And they're saying, well, obviously we have to provide for our own people first and then whatever's left over we will provide for uh, new arrivals. Now this is a revolution in Sweden. Sweden has always prided itself as being a, as sort of a moral superpower that may not be the largest country in the world but it really punches above its weight on immigration issues uh, on refugee issues so to have all the parties slightly shifting or slightly changing their tone if not their politics so far um, tightening up um, in response that is, that is really a major shift and many Swedes are saying that's really a sort of a major break with a post-war consensus. So what we're really seeing is uh, similarities to other countries and then a challenge from the right and you know, worries about immigration and populism and globalization. But what we're also seeing is this Swedish self-image, um, how how you know how moral a country are we and um, what can we afford to do to help people in dire straits. Now, it's possible that Donald Trump spoke from a position of ignorance when he once spoke about social unrest in Sweden, but there is a wider perception of some sort of growing civil unrest in the country. Uh, I know a few weeks ago, Gothenburg made news when, when dozens of cars were burnt out. What is the truth of the crime figures? Is it really just a, ho- a few high profile incidents attracting attention or is there more to it? Well, it really depends where you look. I'm I'm here in a, near the very prestigious NK glamorous department store in the centre of Stockholm. If you walk around Stockholm, everything's fine. I'm heading up now to a rather deprived neighbourhood outside Stockholm. You know the social projects at Woodbury, and that's um that's a very different Sweden. That's a Sweden uh, where you don't hear Swedish. That's a Sweden where people really don't seem to believe that they have any uh, options, integration prospects, and of course drugs, crime, gang warfare, uh, street battles between police and migrants. So there are very much two Swedens. They're talking about the good Sweden and the bad Sweden. Um, Donald Trump, I think it was actually um, um, uh, the it was uh, he spoke about rapes happening in Sweden uh, the night previously. He had seen a documentary about this and apparently claims that uh, Sweden was Sweden was covering it up because of sort of political correctness. Now this isn't the case. Um, this the rape uh, statistics apparently are quite stable, but there's definitely a perception a perception that Sweden is less safe. There are gangs of young men, often not speaking Swedish, hanging around. So even if statistically. Um, things haven't changed that much. People feel a sense that uh, things have changed. They have a, a worry about the other. Uh, and in a, in a country that previously uh, had a very great sense of us, we in Sweden, they often refer to, any sort of other uh, will obviously um, have a, sort of a psychological effect. And you have this one party amplifying that and journalists amplifying it as well. In, in the longer term, it's a bit like global warming. Can a few crimes or a few hot summers in, <laughs> indicate a massive change uh, in, in, the, in the long-term perspective, perhaps, but it's far too short this is only we're only talking about 2015-16 whether or not Sweden is suddenly a crime capital or rape capital it doesn't really seem likely but uh, there's enough people claiming it and if you're in a social media bubble that's insisting this every day you're going to believe it eventually. Now the social democrats who are currently in in coalition with the greens have been losing voters for a number of years they have they failed to adapt to to sort of changing circumstances in 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 the country or or why why is that the case? Well, I mean, there's parallels with other countries. You know, you've got a, a traditional worker or a sort of industrial base workers who are feeling disillusioned because the industrial jobs are going and the Social Democrats trying to decide 
Uh, do you go a third way? Do you stay centre left? Um, and so that's one thing. That's sort of they would you could uh, you could re- you could point a finger in in Austria in in um, Germany and see similar things happening. But what you've also seen is um, the sense that there are problems, uh, whether they're statistically relevant or not is another matter, but there are problems and whether or not the Social Democrats and the centre-left in in Sweden were prepared to actually break a taboo and say yes, not all migrants are saints. Yes, there are migrants who have come to us who have abused our trust. Yes, there are migrants who have come and are abusing the system financially and we need to address that. And really until about a year ago, this was a taboo and um, what really has happened there was an attack on on a synagogue in Gothenburg uh, last December and then a few days later an attack on a a Jewish cultural centre in Malmö uh, in southern Sweden and suddenly um, you had the Swedish Democrats uh, and his Prime Minister uh, Stefan Löfven coming out saying we've been naive Um, we not all saying you know not all migrants are saints and uh, not all racists are Swedish white Swedish angry men there are racists and anti-Semites who have come to us and we need to address that Uh, so what we're seeing is a, sh- a taboo being shattered, partly because of the populists. The other parties have to adapt, but they're basically saying it's time for Sweden to wake up and not be so naive. And, and many people I've been speaking to are saying, at last, because Sweden is almost like a Alice through the looking glass or Alice in Wonderland country, where they, they had a rather... Um, uh, a Pollyannish look at the world, and, how, and and while they wanted the best for the world, the world didn't always want the best for them. And certainly, some of the people who've come didn't want the best. They wanted to take what they could get, and they're just perhaps having a slightly more realistic view of things. I think if you boil it down, what it is is, and uh, many people like us have looked in on Sweden for years and, and admired the welfare state, the social peace. They just seemed to get it, and they were cool on top of it all. And I think many people in Sweden started to believe, uh, sort of uh, believe their own publicity. And what we're hearing now is people outside are pointing in and saying, well, maybe Sweden isn't so perfect. And then the Swedes are saying, well, I suppose if we believe the good reviews, we have to believe the bad reviews. And there are some bad reviews. There are some things going wrong in Sweden. But by and large, this is still a functioning country. It just needs to accept that there are problems because accepting the problems is the first step to solving them. And and how have the the, the Sweden Democrats packaged their their populist uh, anti-immigrant message to make it more palatable to so many Swedes? And is there any chance they might end up as the biggest party? The interesting thing about the Sweden Democrats is um, they are presenting themselves as sort of concerned Swedes. They have neo-Nazi, Nazi background, and they're, they're basically saying, no, we're actually concerned Swedes. But the sort of the extremism, the racism, the xenophobia always keeps leaking out. The question is, how angry are people at the mainstream that they will say yes to Sweden? Democrats are not perfect, but we would, we're so angry we're going to vote for them anyway just to sh- stick it to the rest of them. Uh, that will be one question. And also, it looks as if we're heading to a, a deadlock situation where the sort of the centre-left and the alliance, which would be the right-wing part of Sweden politics, will actually end up roughly on 40% themselves. So it's up to whether one side can lure one party away into their camp to make a majority, or whether perhaps the Sweden Democrats will have some sort of a casting vote, uh, giving support from the opposition benches, uh, in certain policies such as migration because all other parties have have said they're not going to work with them officially the question is will there be some unofficial alliance if uh, or some unofficial cooperation if uh, we end up with an election deadlock on Sunday Derek Scally in Stockholm thank you and you can read Derek's reports from Sweden on irishtimes.com Next to Libya and a report this week by the UN Refugee Agency showed that fewer asylum seekers are making the perilous journey across the Mediterranean to Europe, but that a greater proportion of them are dying. 
Between January and July this year, 1,095 people were killed attempting this crossing, mainly from Libya to Italy. The figures appear linked to a controversial deal that Italy struck with the Libyan Coast Guard last year, whereby migrants intercepted by Italian rescue ships are handed over to the Libyan Coast Guard and returned to the war-torn country. To escape this fate, many migrants, it seems, are now prepared to take even greater risks. For just over a week, journalist Sally Hayden has been in regular contact with many asylum seekers, men, women and children, who've been returned to Libya, and they're reporting dire conditions in detention camps amid fierce fighting taking place between rival groups around the capital Tripoli. Sally has reported on this for the Irish Times and she joins me on the line now. Sally, you've been in contact with refugees and migrants in Libya for just over a week and have tweeted extensively about those exchanges. Can you tell us how that contact came about and what the people told you about the conditions there? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was actually very unexpected. Um, it happened on the 26th of August, which was Sunday, the Sunday before last. And I just got a message on Facebook from um, a guy who said that he was in a Libyan prison. And he said that he had got my number of his brother who knew my reporting in Sudan. And that was literally where it came from. It just came out of nowhere. So I spent about 24 hours trying to verify he was who he said he was and, you know, getting them to send me locations and GPS coordinates and selfies and all of this. Um, and eventually it did turn out that they were exactly who they said they were. And as this was happening, the fighting got worse and worse. So it, it broke out between rival militias in Tripoli and um, the second day that I was talking to this group, they ended up being abandoned in a detention centre with no food, no water, in the middle of fighting. And um, yeah, things have just escalated really from there. And my number then got passed around to about five or six other people. So now I'm in touch with migrants and refugees all over Tripoli who have all either been what they call released, but kind of abandoned or left in detention centres or moved to other locations and are all absolutely terrified. What if the people uh, you're in touch with us uh, sent you a recording from inside one of the centres? We are sending this message straight from Tripoli, Absalom camp. We are 500 people, 120 are from them, women and 20 are children. We are suffering too much. We have no water, no food. The guard has left us because of the war. We are suffering more than too much. The guard has gone from here. The bullets and the weapons are passing through us. The people are disturbed. UN, please help us. European Union, you should recognize that we are in a bad condition and you should give us a first aid help. Can you tell us some of, some of those personal stories you've heard from those people uh, trapped in those conditions? Uh, where are they from and how do they end up there? Yeah, sure. A lot of them are from countries that that would be designated kind of refugee-producing countries like Eritrea or like Somalia or um, Darfur in Sudan. Others are Nigerians or Gambians who um, kind of came in search of a better life and are now regretting it. But for the refugees who have escaped war or conflict or kind of um, other huge human rights abuses, they can't go home. And that's partially why they're terrified because they realise that they have no other option um, and nobody seems to be protecting them. Some of those people obviously have been, have actually made it to uh, the Mediterranean and they have made those crossings and they've been turned back, isn't that right? All of the people that I'm speaking to have been turned back. So the European Union is now, as you said, funding the Libyan Coast Guard. And what they do is 
when they get them at sea, they then bring them back and put them in these detention centers. So everybody that I've been speaking to did try to cross the Mediterranean. They were all caught and then they were put in indefinite detention, um, which, which has a few kind of consequences. One of them is that they just don't know the sissy. So, you know, if you say you're going to release them, but they don't know where they're going, they don't know where the fighting is, they don't have contact, they're hugely vulnerable. Are these people uh, registered as such as migrants or, or, or uh, and obviously if they're not, that, that brings about certain complications? I mean, so obviously there's a discussion about the use of the word refugee and a lot of them have already been designated as refugees in other countries where they still felt they were unsafe and that was why they left them. So they have been registered in other countries, but since they got to Tripoli and since they were put in the detention centres, they haven't managed to be registered by the United Nations Refugee Agency. And this means that nobody has a track of who's there. And they're very worried that if they go missing, if they're killed or kidnapped by traffickers, that nobody will realise that they've even disappeared. And what have, have those UN agencies, for instance, UNHCR or, or NGOs, been doing to respond to this crisis? I think that they're very, very limited in what they can do because the fighting is so intense and they have kind of quite serious protocol for what their staff can and can't do when there are dangers. I like one of the things that's been quite strange for me is that I'm in touch with so many people now in the centers and also who are now homeless on the streets or hiding in other locations. And a lot of the international organizations don't even seem to be aware that those groups are missing. So a lot of what I've been doing is passing information between the people who are contacting me and international organizations who then can try and figure out where they are and get them some help. What have, have those some of those groups, international groups and human rights groups, been saying about that um, that deal between the EU or, or Italy and, and the Libyan Coast Guard um, last year? Um, it has received a lot of criticism, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, MSF, uh, Doctors Without Borders, have been very outspoken about it and how damaging it is and how dangerous it is. Other human rights groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch um, have also spoken out because... Even before this, the people in the centres were being, you know, raped, they were being abused, they were being violently attacked. Some of them I spoke to were tortured in the centres, some of them are sold to traffickers by the guards who are running the centres, and they're also forced to work a lot of the time. So there is huge abuse in the centres already. Now that this fighting has broken out, um, I think it, it just really underlines that it was never a great idea. Um, as the human rights groups say, to, to put them in them in the first place. But the big organisations like UNHCR or IOM, they aren't as outspoken at all about the EU um, policy. So I think I think there's a bit of discord now about whether they should have been speaking out about it all along. Do we have any idea how many asylum seekers have been returned uh, under this agreement or, or are those numbers impossible to gauge? I mean, in, in 2017, it was 20,000. I'm not sure exactly how many this year. I know that in Tripoli itself, where the fighting is happening at the moment, there are 8,000 meant to be in detention centres. But then there are also issues around the Coast Guards. Many people say are working with smugglers. So some of those who are, you know, as they call it, rescued or who are intercepted are actually sent to unofficial detention centres where they're held to ransom by smugglers before they can even move into an official detention centre. So it's really hard to know how many have actually been brought back.
And I know you've been mentioned, it's a kind of a, the full range of, of different sort of people in society. There's men, women and children, uh, pregnant women. Um, obviously, um, a lot of different challenges for the, for the people who are in these conditions. Yeah, yeah, there are. I mean, and it's heartbreaking, really, to be speaking to somebody on the phone who's pregnant or who's um, desperate to feed their children. You know, I've been sent videos of children crying when a bomb went off nearby and the women, a lot of people are worried that they might be captured or, or raped or abused in another way. So that's why they don't really like, you know, when they're being locked away and abandoned, it, it makes people very uncomfortable. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. Has, has there been any response by the EU to the, to the consequences of, of this policy? I, I haven't seen much myself. Has, has there been any political sort of um, reaction to what's been happening in the last, especially number of weeks with the first fighting? I haven't really seen that much. I know that there are debates or there are definitely discussions happening between European politicians and there are people who are lobbying for a debate or for a change, but I haven't seen big statements made about it. Um, I guess, like, yeah, one of the strange things about this is that there are a lot of people on the continent who are having meetings, you know, whereas the people who are in Tripoli are fighting for their lives, so... I don't know how long that process will take. Now, the UN-backed government in Libya has declared a state of emergency around Tripoli. Have any efforts been made to halt the fighting, or is there any sense that that that, that is likely in in the in the short term? Everyone I'm speaking to in Tripoli is saying that it's going to get worse and worse because essentially the groups that were hoping to tackle the UN-backed governments now all want to get involved and try and get a piece of the pie, essentially. So now that this first challenge has been launched, everybody seems to be heading to the capital um, to get to get involved, really. So, And it's worth saying that it's not just the migrants and refugees who are suffering. You know, it's people who live there, like it's Libyans, who now will also probably be trying to leave the country and becoming refugees in their own right. And just finally, what what kind of response have you have you had to your reporting of these unfolding events on Twitter? Obviously, uh, one of one of the consequences has been more people getting in touch with you from there. But um, uh, has there been much reaction? Yeah, it's been huge. I mean, I essentially just tweeted it because I didn't know what else to do, and um, I think the original tweet has been seen more than two hundred and fifteen thousand times now, and. I've just kind of kept adding to it and the amount of people who have said they had no awareness that this was EU policy and that this is why it was happening has been big. Um, and also I've been getting messages from, you know, people who want to help, which is amazing. But it's, it's hard to know how long it's going to go on for and what's going to happen really. And I hope people keep paying attention. Sally Hayden, thank you for joining us. And you can read Sally's report on the situation in Libya on irishtimes.com. Thanks to today's contributors, Derek Scally and Sally Hayden. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon. I'm Dave McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever platform you use or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.